listeners to the editor's desk coming to you from First Things World Headquarters in New York City. And I'm Rusty Reno and I'm the editor and I'm, guess what, sitting at my desk. And I have with me Chris Caldwell, author of Regime, Regime Change American Style, a very extensive review of a new book about Watergate called Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. Chris Caldwell is contributing editor at the Claremont Review and author of The Age of Enlightenment, a very important book about... Uh, Age of Entitlement. Age of Entitlement, thank you. A uh, very important book about post-60s America. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Great to be with you, Rusty. Um, Gary Graff, you know, in, in, he, he makes a, a statement in, in the book that you quote about how Watergate and its denouement represented, and this is, these are his words, a success story of how government worked in a moment of grave crisis. So I guess my first question is, why would someone imagine that the Watergate episode involved a grave crisis? Well, uh, you know, my memories of Watergate are quite vague. I, I, was alive during it, but I have, um, you know, to me, it is mostly history. But if there's one thing I remember in the aftermath of Watergate growing up, um, it was described as a, as an episode during which the system worked, the system worked. This was the worst in, 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 in the view of the way it was described in, in, in the way it was described in most newspapers and most television specials. This was a grave constitutional threat. There was misconduct on Richard Nixon's part um, that placed the um, that placed the American constitutional system under pressure and um, and that it was only thanks to a rigorous, let's say ad adherence to um, to the rule of law and uh, that we were able to get out of it. I'm not sure that that um, that that interpretation of Watergate has really stood the test of time. No, I remember very well. I was, I think, 13 years old in the summer of the hearings when it reached the peak. Sam Irvin in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, and, and they would be, they must have been sort of the, the highlights at night or something like that, because I do remember my parents on our screen porch in Baltimore, Maryland, every night listening to the um, Watergate hearings. Um, and yes, I, it was considered this grave crisis. But your point is like, so JFK, Bay of Pigs, uh, JFK uh, signing off on Diem's assassination in Vietnam, uh, Lyndon Johnson using the Gulf of Tonkin resolution to escalate the Vietnam War. You look at back at those and you got to think that I mean, Watergate's pretty small potatoes compared to, so what, why, again, uh, do you have some sense of, I guess you suggest in the piece that maybe uh, there was a point post late 60s and a certain new moralism uh, arising and Washington saying, well, we better stop this and it's a time to put an end to this way of governing. Yes, I think, and I think that's right. I think that you know, 
certain things can be inoffensive at one point, but the grievance can build up to the point uh, where people begin to say enough is enough. I think there was an element of that um, with Watergate. I, I, but I have a special, maybe you'd call it a pet theory about um, um, why the grievance is built up at that time. I mean, if you compare, um, you know, uh, it's, it's instructive to ask, why did the civil rights movement um, culminate in the Was- March on Washington and, um, and uh, the, the civil rights legislation at the time it did, say in the early 1960s? After all, this was not the, the, um, the, the worst stage of segregation. Things were probably worse 30 years before and things were probably improving. I think that the the thing that ticked it off at that 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 set it off at that moment was probably television. I mean, television mm. came into Americans' homes. Um, you know, let's say in the mid fifties, roughly. It was a little sooner, some places, a little later, uh, other places. And a lot of these, um, you know, um, a lot of injustices, which had been, you know far off in Americans' peripheral vision, if they were in vision at all, were suddenly right front and center of their lives. And um, so things that were tolerable in, in 1950 were just um, extremely upsetting in 1965. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, I think that the, the availability of television, um, let's just say put put certain political issues on the menu in the way that they hadn't been before. And, and Kennedy came uh, early enough and Johnson came just early enough um, so that they weren't totally affected by it. Although I would say that, that the way the Vietnam War destroyed the Johnson administration was itself a, a function of television. And that didn't happen to the, you know, I think that the, the Truman administration 15 years earlier had suffered from its conduct of the of the of the Korean War, but not to the extent that Johnson did in Vietnam. So I think television is absolutely crucial to this. Nixon, fascinating figure. I mean, I must say that I've, as I've grown older and learned more about him, I find him more more and more appealing. Uh, although I guess that's an acquired taste. So, as a question, was Nixon the first post-war populist? I mean, he was sort of Joseph McCarthy who didn't put his yeah. foot in his mouth and wasn't an alcoholic and didn't yeah. uh, alien, didn't go too far. Yes, I think, I, you know, I tried to, in this review, I tried to allude to what some people have called cloth coat republicanism, you know, I mean, which is to, which is drawn from a phrase in Nick, Nixon's famous checkers speech. The checkers speech was came when Nixon was accused of, um, of, of having a special, of, of misusing the money in, the, in a campaign fund during his campaign for vice president, uh, uh, along with Eisenhower in, the, in 1952. And uh, I believe this was in September of 1952. And even at that late stage in the campaign, he had to go on television and radio to defend himself from that charge before the um, American public. It was at the time the largest television audience in history. And he went on and he said that, uh, no, he had not, um, spent any money improperly, but he mentioned that, um, that he had received one campaign gift that he wasn't giving back. And that was the, uh, 
a little cocker spaniel puppy for his uh, daughter, which was named Checkers. But during that um, speech, he did mention that his 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 wife owned a simple cloth coat, and that was not the sort of picture I would say that most Republican politicians had wanted to draw of themselves or of their of their families. And I think that Nixon became very representative of of the sort of people that Republicans served and the sort of people that Republicans were. And um, I think he made a direct, he put the Republicans directly in competition for the working class vote so that by 1971, when the um, the television series All in the Family was um, was was first went on the air, um, a comedy for those who weren't old enough to remember it, it about Archie Bunker, who's a, 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 a I guess he works in a um, in a factory of some sort, or he's a, or a, or a loading dock in Queens, and he is one of the first kind of loudmouth kind of populists on TV. His support of Nixon is a very plausible thing. It's not outlandish at all that a member of the working class would be immensely loyal to to Richard Nixon against the sort of more, uh, let's say, established working class politics that was on offer at the time in the and Democratic against, Party. And against uh, his son-in-law, Meathead, yes. who's in the university class. Yes. I mean, you, right. make, you make a very arresting observation and that I'll quote here more than any other. It's it's germane to your what your 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 what you just said. You say this more than any other national politician until Hillary Hillary Clinton, Nixon became the model for the kind of citizen his party produced and stood for. What so you've spelled out the Nixonian, if you will, rapport with his own base. What is the Hillary Clinton rapport? Oh, I With think her base. That, uh, you know, I think that that Hillary Clinton is technocracy. I mean, all you know, almost all Democrats this century, maybe since Bill Clinton, have had some links to what well, since Michael Dukakis, let us say, um, have had links to what we might call technocracy to the sort of the rational managerial solution of problems, you know, leave this to the C-suite and, um, and, and, and it'll work out better than if we all argue over it. Um, I think that, that, yeah, I think Hillary Clinton is a, is a representative of the, um, uh, let's say of the university managerial class. She's a representative of the, uh, let's say of the shift in the American economy from when we went from being an industrial economy to being a knowledge economy, which mm-hmm. meant that that the center of economic power in the country was no longer in, in factories, it was in universities. And um, uh, Hillary is the is is probably the embodiment of the um, of let's say the commanding heights of the new economy. Um, and 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 that is a you know, it's a it's a system that has its virtues, and the people who run it have their virtues. But um, but it's not to everyone's liking, and it's probably why she fell just short um, when she ran for president. Why did Nixon win on such an incredible landslide in 1972? 
I mean, really, I think listeners, partly because of the disgrace of Watergate, we've scrubbed from our memory the fact that it was an FDR uh, scale mandate in in 1972. Yes, it is the it is in fact in terms of um, um, popular vote the popular vote margin. It is the largest landslide in the history of the United States. It was in in 18 million vote um, victory. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the internal internal dynamics of the Democratic Party. I mean, the the issues at the time, um, which were the Vietnam War, um, which Nixon was trying to bring to a close, and the in the protests around it, civil rights, um, and um, you know the attendant urban unrest, um, which had kind of abated, but but had but 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 was very, very much in recent memory. And the beginnings of um, a certain um, economic unease. You remember the, the year before, 1972, um, the United States had gone off the Bretton Woods standard. Uh, 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 Nixon had um, introduced wage and price controls. You know, so all those things created a lot of unrest. They really shouldn't have broken that squarely in favor of Nixon. But I think that what happened, the real difference is that the Democrats introduced primaries and they didn't really understand the polarizing dynamic of primaries, which lead, which lead parties to... As we're seeing uh, today. <laughs> yes, they lead, they lead parties to, to nominate to their bases and not to the center of the, of the general electorate. And they wound up with, um, with George McGovern, um, who's a you know a very good man, a, a, a war hero, um, uh, uh, Air Force pilot, and in, uh, in 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 the Second World War, um, um, a, a decent American, but very um, very anti-war and very uh, much on the left in a kind of a, a prairie populist way, and that was just not what the public was looking for then. So I think that it had um, it probably had as much to do with McGovern as it did with Nixon. But it was still an extraordinary uh, victory. I would add that the attempted assassination of George Wallace by Arthur Bremer is a factor because he, I mean, he nearly lost his life, and so he was not really he was out of the picture by the time you got to the general election, uh, by the time you got to November, and that may have he may have gained fifteen percent of the vote. That's a uh, very good point. Yeah, that's uh, you know. The backdrop to it is the 1968 election when Wallace ran, and I believe that Nixon got about 43% of the vote in that election, Humphrey got about 42, and, and Wallace got about 15. Um, and people have speculated, you know, well, um, you know, Wallace came out of the Democratic Party. He was the function of a, you know, of a disaggregation of the two main blocks in the Democratic Party, which were sort of like you know, northern working class and southern um, segregationist. Um, and the question was, how much, assuming a non-breakup of the Democratic Party, how much of that would have gone to Nixon and how much would have gone to Humphrey? It seemed like a very close um, race in 1968, but when the Wallace vote resolved itself, it turned out to be an almost unanimous Nixon vote. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um Okay, back to Watergate. 
you, why does it matter that Deep Throat, who was the key source for Woodward and Bernstein and, and their very important Washington Post uh, articles, why did it matter that that turned out to be Mark Felt, who was the number two at the FBI? Yeah, there, there was a, you know, there was a lot of um, upheaval at the FBI. The FBI is a very, you know, we forget looking back um, how young the FBI was as an organization at the time. It was about a half century old, but it seemed young because Led it, by but, one man for the, but almost. it had only had exactly it had only had one one man leading it, and so it was kind of like. Um, you know, the French Fifth Republic around the time of the May riots when people were wondering if the system could exist without de Gaulle. Mm -hmm. I mean, the FBI had, you know, it, it had taken its present form around the time of what was called the original Red Scare just after um, World War One, And it was, it had always had a kind of role of rounding up subversives and that and that authority was was abused um you know now most people know um about the surveillance by the fbi of martin luther king but um but but he was not alone and it was not merely over civil rights it was also over any kind of leftist opposition to the um uh to the vietnam war although they have always they always surveilled uh, kept um right-wing fringe groups under surveillance as well, like the Ku Klux Klan. But the FBI had a lot of power. People were very scared of, um, of J. Edgar Hoover. Nobody really knew. People suspected that he actually had a lot of sexual um, blackmail material on important politicians mm -hmm. um, and other important um, public figures, and people were scared to death of him. Um, well, Felt was his with, along with another guy named um, Clyde Tolson, the two of them were were his most trusted lieutenants in the in the in the late sixties. Hoover died just before Watergate, so he was out of the picture. But Felt had this idea that he would be appointed uh, Hoover's successor, um, and just just without much ado. That seems to me a kind of a crazy opinion. A, cra a crazy idea to hold because I mean, the, the FBI was in the idea, in the eyes of a lot of people in the executive branch, a really problematic uh, institution. And you wouldn't want to put J. Edgar Hoover's pr protege in charge of it. But that's what Felt thought. And when Nixon um, appointed um, Patrick Gray, one of his own aides, as the interim director, um, felt went to war against the administration, and and mm. and because of his position, um, he was getting a lot of intelligence about what the administration knew about Watergate shared with him, and he was just leaking it to the press, not just to to Bob Woodward, um, but to a lot of um, a lot of different outlets, and um, so that's how that worked. So the, uh, I think you, you point out, you quote, I can't remember which famous journalist uh, observed that there really is no investigative uh, uh, journalism in Washington, D.C. It's yeah. That was Ed and Jane Epstein, yeah. It's the other way around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are journalists who uh, have buckets in front of their office and then disgruntled bureaucrats dump 
tips right. into their bucket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's not even made... the bucket. You, you know, a disgruntled member of the bureaucracy will call up a journalist and say, hey, I've got I've got something, something that might interest you. Yeah. 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 Well, fast. You know, I think that's obviously still the case, as we yeah. know. from. Well, what about there's a kind of an enduring mystery uh, with Watergate, which is that in the in the investigation, they shifted over to this question of obstruction of justice fairly quickly. And so when there, no one really got to the bottom of what actually happened or why there was this break in. That's right. And that, I think, is the very best thing about this um, this new history of Watergate by uh, uh, by Graf. I, I, I think um, I, I, I think. Watergate has been very well covered. Nixon has been very well covered. I, Stanley Cutler's uh, account of Watergate is really very authoritative. It's it's beautiful. But one thing that this new book um, does is uh, uh, it does illustrate this that that the the burglars, the original burglars, were were brought before a court in Washington D.C. in uh, um, in the summer and fall, I think of um, uh, of 1972, and 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 they and people were interested in obstruction of justice, so they, they the 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 burglars made various deals over time um, uh, uh, in exchange for testimony, uh, but people were so consumed by this question of whether Nixon knew. That really they did not fully investigate the the burglary, and so we we absolutely do not know who ordered it. We do not know whether it had an actual link with the CIA, as as a couple of a couple of the burglars always claimed it did. Um, um, uh, and and uh, uh, Howard Hunt and 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 um, James McCord. Um, so. That is always going to be a mystery. There are, there, are, there are a lot of things about the burglary that make absolutely no sense. And there have been a number of theories that get called conspiracy theories, uh, you know, about whether they, you know, the actual thing that was being tapped was a, was a call girl ring um, that was being organized out of the Democratic um, uh uh, 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 party headquarters. I mean, there, there, there are a lot, or, or whether the CIA was running an operation, or naval intelligence was running an operation against Nixon. These, these all sound like wild theories, but the, but they only exist because there actually is no, there is is no authoritative account of of, of what this burglary even was. Why did Nixon have so many enemies? It's pretty obvious from your account and other accounts that I've read that he was kind of doomed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I think you can really, you can begin um, to get to an answer to that question with, with one name, which is that of Alger Hiss. Um, <laughs> Nixon um, rose as a very young um, uh, uh, World War II um, Navy veteran, and, and he, 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 he quickly went into Congress, served there for six years. He was a real slash and burn um, anti-communist. He, um, uh, he defeated a very popular um, congressman, considered 
I think he, he actually won a contest as the most popular congressman, a guy named Jerry Voorhees, by accusing him of being soft on communism. Nixon really, Nixon was a real anti-communist, like a lot of people who aren't necessarily, you know, terribly ideological in other ways. Nixon was really a convinced anti-communist. And um, at the end of his house term, let's say in the middle of his house term, he, he took up the case um, um, of Alger Hiss, who'd been accused of um, um, of being a, a, a Soviet operative in the, um, in, in the, in, in the Truman administration and, and had really, um, he had really um, prosecuted that case aggressively in, in, in the um, House on American Activities um, uh, Committee. And um, the, Hiss, was a, Hiss was a sort of a, a kind of a, let's say, a, a, an elegant State Department um, figure, a, a, a really beloved in the, in the, among, you know, Georgetown um, cocktail party set. And I, and I think that it was considered a real assault on, on, on Washington society. And, um, uh, I think that, I think that also the, the, the zeal of his anti-communism was considered a little bit, um, excessive by people who didn't share it. It was not really easy to see just how central anti-communism was to the identity of the Republican Party until later, I would say in, in until the Reagan administration, um, when you had a coalition that that was made up of two parts that didn't really seem to have a lot in common, which is, you know, um, capitalists and Christians. And, and what was holding them together, it was actually anti-communism. But I think that it was the anti-communism was there for a long time, and Nixon was probably its best-known representative. He also had a deep antipathy for the Northeast establishment, which he, you know, would, I guess, part of the presidential tapes exposes his bitterness over the people that he sees as scheming against him, inevitably the high-born Ivy League types. So so he seems to have, ultimately, they... He didn't have any allies in in the world that that seemed to matter when it all came down in 1973-74. Yes, yes. Um I think that's right. Yeah. You describe all these factors that make this downfall inevitable, the changes in the press, the rising um uh, uh legal activism, uh the 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 changes in in um, in governmental, and we already t- discussed, you know, maybe a, a sense that enough was enough in terms of the way in which the country was being run in the fifties and sixties. But it seems like it seems unlikely that something like Watergate would would re- reoccur in our time. In other words, it seems very unlikely that whoever the president w- uh, would be wouldn't follow Patrick Buchanan's advice and destroy the tapes or that wouldn't um, hire or in some way foment through his allies, counter suits, counter accusations. Um, I think of Trump's um, uh, claims about the election being stolen as uh, an insurance policy against a Watergate style um, assault on him. You know, anybody says you're 
uh, undermining the constitutional system. It's a kind of tit for tat. No, no, you're undermining. I know you are, but what yeah. am I? I know you are, but what am I? Yeah. Well, sort of childhood taunts yeah. that are very much in the air right now. I mean, it seems that both all politicians know they have to armor up in one way or, the, or another against these kinds of techniques of of, uh, of attack. Yes. Well, on one hand, I do think that that the recourse to impeachment is obviously um, pretty exhausted uh, at this point. It, no, but I mean, but it's 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 more common. I mean, you know, at the time Nixon was being investigated, there had only been one person ever impeached in the history of the, the presidency. That was Andrew Johnson after the uh, the Civil War. And it was a a really atypical time and 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 I think a lot of what he was being impeached for was not being Abraham Lincoln which is something <laughs> that he has in common with a lot of us um uh but since um Nixon you've had um you know several attempts to 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 do this uh the Iran Contra um investigation during the Reagan administration mm-hmm. was an attempt to get rid of Ronald Reagan through impeachment that was the goal of the investigation and he was just too popular um, to do it, but he was just barely too popular. And it, it actually required, I think, the testimony of Oliver North, which hard though it is to believe today, really won the hearts of Americans to, to get um, Reagan off the hook. The Republicans tried to um, impeach, um, or did impeach Clinton, and, and the Democrats impeached Trump twice. So impeachment is a threat to... Um, is a threat to presidents. I, I I think it's significant that that it's Clinton and um, and Trump who were impeached because they're both people who, in a certain way, lost control of the Justice Department. Mm, yeah, you and point I think, that out in your yeah. in your piece, which I think is very perceptive. So I do think I I very much do think you could have a Watergate um, uh, uh, um, uh, situation, but it would require a couple of things. It would require um, in opposition control of both houses of con- co- Congress for mm. to give a, a sort of a subpoenaing and investigating uh, monopoly, and it would require a some sort of failure in the president's sort of like management of the self-protective part of the presidency, which is uh, unfortunately a big part of the presidency. I look back at Watergate from now 50 years. And by my analysis, the deepest uh, pressure that led to Watergate was, this was the time period where the Democratic Party was gaining control of all the functions of government that were non-elective. And and the Nixon's landslide in 72 was a referendum against that future for our country. And, um, and so it was just essential to regain control of the, I mean, in that sense, the, the constitution was, it was a crisis. Um, and it's legitimate to think as a grave crisis, but the grave crisis is what, is what the, the rising technocratic elite wanted and what the people wanted were discordant. And Nixon was a, he was a paladin of that discontented popular sentiment. And that you just can't run a country 
when the people who are in or if you will in charge of the many many levers of power uh, want to go one way and there's somebody who just recently got elected who doesn't want who wants to go the other way and something has to give and it was Nixon and we can see you know from what happened in the in the country between 1968 and I would say let's say between the you know between the Chicago Democratic Convention of 1968 and the failed nomination of Robert Bork in 1987. You had two decades that were probably the most, it was probably the most conservative two decade stretch in American history. The, the, the country was really in a, in a very conservative, was in a very conservative mood. And, and um, um, so I think you're right in that, in that, in that extent, it was a, the, 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 there was a real, Nixon was the first sign of that groundswell. And he also, he proposed to Congress a fundamental reorganization of the federal bureaucracy, as I recall. Didn't go anywhere because the Democratic-controlled Congress stymied it. But then uh, after his reelection, he, his strategy was to concentrate greater and greater power in the appointed, I mean, in his, in his staff, in, in the White House, to siphon away decision-making from the various agencies of the federal bureaucracy. So this was, this was another kind of threat to business as usual, it seemed mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, um, I'm not really sure how effective it would have been. I mean, I, this agreed. is not my area of expertise, but, it, but an interesting thing Nixon did at the start of his second term is he demanded resignations from everyone and, and accepted them. So as he launched onto what would be the very stormy seas of the first months of um, mm. in 73. He had no, he had no old confidence around him except for Haldeman and Ehrlichman, um, his, you know, chief of staff and his chief of staff's chief of staff. Um, and, and so he turned out not to be, he had that ambition that you describe, but he turned out not to be really much better at understanding the workings of the, of a, of, a, of a huge executive in administration. And he turned out not to be any better than most Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time. It's been, it's been great to talk about. And I really think the piece is a fabulous um, a, introduction of folks who were not alive at the time. As this really, I mean, I remember as a kid in the 70s, it was, uh, it was as defining as the anti-war protests were in the late 60s. It was a kind of cast a long shadow over our public life all the way, I think, until the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Well, thank you, Rusty.